0: Love. Thank <laughs> you.
1: Okay, it's 7:01. Welcome to Clarifying the sages intent discussion group, and we'll start by saying the refuge prayer in English only I go for refuge until I'm enlightened to the Buddhas the Dharma and the Assembly of Saints From the virtuous merits that I collect by the practice of giving and the other perfections May I attain the state of a Buddha? benefit all sentient beings I go for refuge until I am enlightened to the Buddha's the Dharma and the Assembly of Saints and the virtuous merits that I collect by the practice of giving and the other perfections I attain the state of a Buddha benefit all sentient beings I go for refuge until I'm enlightened to the Buddha's the Dharma and the Assembly of Saints the virtuous merits that I collect by the practice of giving and the other perfections. May I attain the state of a Buddha to benefit all sentient beings. May all beings have happiness and the causes of happiness. May all beings be free from suffering and the causes of suffering. May all beings never be separated from the bliss which is sorrowless. May all dwell in equanimity, free from aversion and clinging. The ground is covered with flowers and sprinkled with scented water. In the middle is Mount Meru, surrounded by the four continents and ornamented by the sun and the moon. By visualizing all this and offering it as a Buddha realm, may all sentient beings partake of the Buddha's pure lands. Om, Guru, Buddha, Bodhisattva, Sapariwara, Ratnamandala. Kudzamega Samunda, Saparana, Samaya, Om So welcome to our first live broadcast of clarifying the sages intent discussion group We're going to be using uh, two books this evening. One is the commentary on the Clarifying the Sage's Intent by Ape Rinpoche, which is a smaller volume. And the other is the actual text itself. See if I can get that visible. Sakya Pandita's actual text of Clarifying the Sage's Intent. And we'll be doing some reading from the text. Of the commentary by api Rinpoche uh, I'll be making some extra comments from Sakya pandita's original text and then there'll be time for a little bit of discussion and questions from the folks who are here uh, we're not set up to take questions online yet maybe someday we'll have that but uh, hopefully uh, you can hear us and see us okay <clears throat> So we've been running this group for several weeks now, and we have covered a few of the beginning chapters, but I think it might be a good idea to just say a few words about Clarifying the Sage's Intent, how it was written and where it came from. So Clarifying the Sage's Intent was written by Sakyapandita, Pandita, who was a great uh, Tibetan scholar and master. And he lived in the 12th century, 12th and 13th century. And he wrote this book towards the end of his life as a practice manual. So it's a book that covers basically from the beginning to the end, from before becoming a Buddhist through becoming a Buddhist, the practice of being a Bodhisattva Buddhist and The final fruit which is enlightenment. So it's it's a bit of a roadmap map for spiritual development for the Bodhisattva's path and Sakyapandita taught this text more than any other text that he taught he taught it all over a number of different countries in the latter part of his life Now the book is based on two lines from Another book, which is Maitreya's uh, Ornament of the Mahayana Sutras. So it might be interesting to know who Maitreya was and how did Sakya Pandita get a hold of Maitreya's book. So the the entire clarifying the sage's intent text is based on only two lines in the other book. So I think it's uh, might be interesting to just Back in time a little bit and and recount the story of how how all of this happened So <clears throat> Maitreya is known as the coming buddha or the buddha to come and So that raises the question Well, how do we know that <laughs> and where is he and how did we get his books? so as we said in the previous classes the path itself uh, of the Bodhisattva Bhumi path there are ten levels and the tenth level is the final step before enlightenment so when the historical Buddha the Shakyamuni Buddha was at that level the tenth level he had another student he had a student was also at that level and that student was Maitreya that's really distracting me all this stuff can you Just keep a hold of her a little bit. There's a dog running around here getting kisses and hugs from everybody. Um, So so the Shakyamuni Buddha, the historical Buddha, who lived in India 2,600 years ago, and Maitreya were both on the 10th Bhumi. And as Shakyamuni Buddha was about to become enlightened, he passed his crown on to his student, Maitreya, and he told Maitreya that That Shakyamuni Buddha said that he was going to take rebirth in the human realm in order to help sentient beings Now all of the Buddhas in the current time period and there are a thousand thousand of them All of them have been prophesied So it was known that uh, Shakyamuni Buddha is the fourth of these thousand and Maitreya will be the fifth So that was already Uh Known by prophecy So Shakyamuni Buddha descended Took rebirth in India Taught for 45 years or so And then passed into parinirvana. He left his teachings And the scriptures that were written down about the teachings And those were studied by masters uh, In the following century, centuries In the 4th century in India There was a master who was born who was named Asanga, and Asanga was uh, a great philosophy teacher at Nalanda Institute or Nalanda University, which was one of the great philosophical universities in India. And so as a result of his studies, he knew about the thousand Buddhas, and he knew that Maitreya was going to be or is going to be the next uh, coming Buddha. So as many of these scholars were, Asanga was also a great practitioner. And so he wanted to uh meet Maitreya Buddha. I'm I'm not sure how he got this idea, but he decided that he wanted to and so he decided that the way to do that would be to go into strict retreat for 3 years and supplicate Maitreya and ask him to appear and teach him so he went into a solitary retreat for three years a strict retreat and as some of you probably know these retreats can are are, are quite strict they the person is closed into a cave or a retreat room with no contact with anybody they're not seen by anybody they don't see anybody uh, the food might be passed through a hole in the wall they might be sealed in uh, But it's a very intensive practice. So Asanga spent three years in strict retreat supplicating Maitreya And after the three years No Maitreya appeared (laughs) So Asanga left the retreat he went out and he saw somebody uh, Cutting a rock with a thread going back and forth back and forth with a thread and Slowly 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 cutting the rock and he said to himself. Well if a little thread can cut a rock with enough time Then I should be able to not be so impatient and I should give enough time for having contact with maitreya so Asanga went back into retreat and then did another three-year retreat strict retreat closed in and So after the end of the second Three year period, in other words, after six years, still no Maitreya. So he exited the retreat, he went outside, he saw water dripping on a rock, slowly drip, drip, dripping, and he said to himself, Well, if water can wear away a rock, I shouldn't be so impatient and I should continue my practice. And so he went back into retreat again, and he did another three-year retreat. And so now we're talking about nine years in retreat. I don't know if any of you have ever done a nine-year retreat, but I can imagine that it's a very intense experience. So he did another three years, and after that three-year period, there was still no sign of Maitreya. So he went out from the retreat, and he saw an eagle who had nested on a, on a rock on the side of a mountain. And he was going into this sort of rock structure and brushing the side of the rock with his Eagle feathers. And the rock was being worn down by the slow uh, caress of the Eagle feathers. And he said to himself, well, why can't I be as patient as the Eagle and I should have more uh, patience and a better practice. So he went back into retreat again for another three years and after that three-year retreat so after a total of 12 years of retreat he started to wonder if Maitreya was going to show up or not or what was going on so at the end of the three-year retreat he left the retreat again and as he went out from his retreat hut he saw a sickly dog A mangy dog who had a lot of sores on his body and there were maggots in the sores eating the dog so Asanga saw this and was moved with great compassion because while he had not seen Maitreya in the 12 years of retreat he had developed an intense compassion for sentient beings so when he saw the poor dog with uh, uh, the disease and the maggots he felt compassion not only for the dog but also for the maggots and so he was trying to think well what can I do here to help this situation so he decided that he would try to entice the maggots with some fresh meat and so he cut a slice of his own thigh and offered his own flesh to the maggots Unfortunately, the maggots were not impressed, and they didn't budge, and so it didn't work. And so then he was trying to figure out, well, now what can I do? Because he thought, well, if I grab the maggots and pull them off the dog and stick them on the meat, I might kill them in the process. And he didn't want to do that because he had compassion also for the maggots. So he thought about it, and he finally decided that he would get down on his hands and knees and he would remove the maggots from the dog with his own tongue, because his tongue was soft. That's how much compassion that he had for the maggots and the dog. And as soon as he did that, the dog instantly appeared and changed into Maitreya. And so I don't know what a, a song I thought, but I can imagine he was quite surprised. <laughs> and he said to Maitreya I just spent 12 years in retreat where were you and Maitreya said I was there the whole time but you didn't see me because you had too many obscurations in front of your vision and Asanga believed him but he was still a little bit doubtful he wasn't quite sure and Maitreya said well I'll prove it to you. Put me on your shoulders and take me into town. So Asanga agreed. He hoisted Maitreya on his shoulders, walked into the town, and started talking to people and asking them, Do you see anything on my shoulders? Nobody saw anything. Nobody could see the Maitreya because, of course, they had obscurations also. And person after person said, no, I don't see anything. Why? (laughs) Until finally there was one old woman who was very pure uh, practitioner. She didn't see Maitreya, she saw the dog. And so that was enough to convince Asanga that Maitreya is there. It's just a question of the obscurations that we have that prevent us from seeing him. So, at that point, Asanga requested to Maitreya to receive teachings from him. So, Maitreya took Asanga to what's called Tushita Heaven. Usually, Buddhas reside in, in realms that are called Buddha realms. And these realms are very difficult for ordinary beings to access due to karma and various... Uh, obscurations and so on. But in this case, Tushita Heaven is more accessible, and so Asanga was able to go to Tushita Heaven where Maitreya resides, and Maitreya uh, granted him uh, the teaching of five of Maitreya's texts. Now the story is that it only took one morning for Maitreya to transmit these He's, he transmitted them orally Asanga being the great scholar that he was he had total recall and so he remembered every word of the five texts and um, that all happened in the course of one morning Asanga returned to India But the time there's a time difference between India and Tushita heaven or our realm and that realm so what's only one morning in that realm is actually 50 years in our time So Sangha was gone 50 years, but he came back with the five texts Because he had total recall he remembered them and he could write them down and one of the texts is the ornament of Mahayana Sutras Two lines of which are the basis for Sakya Pandita's clarifying the sages' intent. So, clarifying the sages', uh, uh, sorry, the ornament of Mahayana sutras is known and studied in the great uh, philosophical universities. And so, when Sakya Pandita came along in the 12th and the 13th century, of course, he was quite familiar with that text. Uh, and he didn't have to rely on any translations because he was fluent in sanskrit himself even though he was a tibetan by the way sakya pandita is not a name it's a title so sakya refers to the geographical part of tibet <clears throat> where sakya pandita was born and lived and pandita is an honorary title that comes uh from india which is granted when a person has mastered the five major sciences and the five minor sciences and Sakya Pandita was the first Tibetan to ever be given that title he was given that title by his Indian teacher who was also a pandita or pandit um Sakya Pandita's name is Kunga Gautzen so Sakya Pandita decided that it would be a good idea after practicing for a lifetime to write down the path to enlightenment for regular people beginners people on the street so to speak and he went all around teaching this text in fact this text has some alternative titles one of which is uh, the text that was taught to everybody (laughs) and so this text uh, comes down to us today Uh, The commentary is by Ape Rinpoche, who was a very famous uh, Tibetan Lama of the 20th century. And he has, uh, this was actually a, a teaching that he gave in Singapore that was recorded and then transcribed and put into book form. So, as I said, the text is basically a roadmap for enlightenment. The first chapter starts with a person who is not even a Buddhist yet but basically uh, talks about how everybody has a spiritual potential, but some people have developed it and other people haven't. The people who have developed spiritual potential have a tendency towards virtue, a tendency towards being helpful, a tendency towards wanting to do spiritual practice. Those people who then decide to go on the spiritual path of a Buddhist Then take a formal step, which is called going for refuge, and that's the second chapter of the book. The different kinds of refuge, uh, how we uh, produce it, and how we go on to the path. The path. That we're talking about there's many paths even in within buddhism. There's many paths and we're talking about the bodhisattva path Which is what Sakya pandita concerns himself with? So once a person takes refuge then What do they do if you're a Mahayana or a great vehicle practitioner you practice what are called the six perfections? so the six perfections Take up a large part of this book, although there are some chapters after that. And so Sakyat begins by explaining uh, The various six perfections what they are How to practice them? What are the results in this life and in the next life? And what is the final fruit? and the first of the six perfections is the perfection of generosity Uh, Which is the basis for all the other perfections, and we have covered that in previous discussions, so we won't do that tonight. The second of the six perfections is the perfection of morality. So it's important to know that uh, these perfections are not just simple generosity or simple morality, which lots of people have, but the perfection of these and so the discussion revolves around what are these perfections and what makes them the perfection of the perfection (laughs) how do you make it perfect in other words so the next chapter is the second perfection which is the perfection of morality and again lots of people have morality but if we're going to be on the the Mahayana path or the great vehicle Great vehicle path. We have to understand how do we perfect the practice of morality. So that's where we're going to start tonight. So fortunately, we have somebody who's going to read for us, and uh, you won't have to listen to me all night. So I'm going to ask Sybil to start reading Chapter Five, which is the perfection of morality. <clears throat>
2: The second of the six perfections is the perfection of morality. Generally speaking, morality refers to the mental state which longs to discard non-virtuous deeds. It is the foundation for practicing patience, meditation, and the other perfections. Since all practices require discipline, the practice of moral discipline is necessary training for everything to follow. It is like preparing the soil to grow crops When we later on engage in other virtuous actions, they will increase and multiply and the flow of positive results will be incessant On the other hand without the support of moral discipline We will not succeed in developing any of the other spiritual qualities
1: So in a way this kind of makes sense. It's sort of common sense that if you're going to be a spiritual practitioner on a spiritual path you have to be a moral person you can't be a great meditator and then run around and lie and steal and kill people it doesn't make any sense so the morality as it says is preparing the soil for these other perfections to grow so the perfections are based one on another and they're in a specific order for a specific reason so the morality is is underneath all the other perfections and it supports them.
2: The way to transform mundane morality into the perfection of morality is to engage in it with the motivation to liberate all sentient beings, conjoined with the Mahayana view of ultimate reality. When both the Enlightenment thought and the Mahayana view of ultimate reality are conjoined with morality, it becomes the perfection of morality although ordinary worldlings and those on the Hinayana path also engage in morality it is not possible for them to practice the perfection of morality because they do not generate the enlightenment thought and they lack the Mahayana view of ultimate reality
1: okay so here Ape Rinpoche he gets right to the point uh, describing what needs to happen in order for morality to be perfected so what he says is uh, we have to have two things the Enlightenment thought is the first one now what does he mean by the Enlightenment thought that's sort of shorthand for saying my aspiration and my action is to attain enlightenment for the sake of all beings in other words sentient beings are suffering i'm not really in a position right now where i can do much of anything to help them but a buddha can and so what i will do is i will go and uh practice the the great vehicle path attain enlightenment for the sake of sentient beings not for my own sake if i do it just for my own sake and i relieve my own suffering and i leave everybody else behind what kind of deal is that (laughs) So the first quality that I have to have is uh, the enlightenment thought for the sake of all beings. The second quality is uh, the Mahayana view of the ultimate reality. What does that mean? That means I have to accomplish uh, the realization of emptiness or interdependence. We're not going to go into that topic tonight because it's beyond our scope. But those are the two prerequisites, according to Apri Rinpoche, which turn regular morality into the perfection of morality.
2: There are three ways in which our morality may be impaired. Number one, through not guarding the morality we have promised to maintain. Number two, through following the wrong type of morality, such as the morality of other religious traditions. And number three through practicing the morality of the Hinayana path, which cannot become the cause for gaining full and perfect enlightenment.
1: Okay, so the first of these, not guarding the morality we promised to maintain, uh, is going to be discussed later on in this chapter. In other words, the, the promising or, or taking vows, and so we'll talk about that later. The second one, following the wrong type of morality, such as the morality of other religious traditions, what that refers to, remember we're talking about ancient India now, or Tibet when this was written, and there were some groups that practiced, for example, animal slaughter, uh, thinking that that's an offering to a god or a goddess, and that kind of morality doesn't have any place here because killing. Is not a moral act. And so those kinds of uh, actions are the wrong type of morality. And then the third one, practicing the morality of the Hinayana path, what that refers to is not having this motivation that we discussed a minute ago, which is, I'm going to do the path for the benefit of all beings. If I just do it for myself, that's a Hinayana path or a lesser motivation. And because we're talking about Mahayana practice here that's uh, considered a moral fault
2: The unfavorable consequence of impairing our morality accruing in this lifetime Is that we will be criticized by the people around us? We will also feel ashamed even to appear before our teacher to sit with other members of the sangha or to receive offerings This is because when we know our morality is not pure it instills a kind of cowardice or timidity within us. We'll feel very small when we receive offerings. Not only will other people criticize and blame us, but nonhumans will also make obstacles for us. Gods who protected us in the past will no longer protect us, and Buddhas and Bodhisattvas will be displeased with us. The unfavorable consequence accruing in the next life is rebirth in one of the lower realms, Unless we guard our morality properly, we will not be protected from taking birth there, even if we listen to the teachings and study them well. It is said that if we commit the ten non-virtuous deeds, we will definitely be reborn in the lower realms. Even if we commit only some of the minor non-virtues, this may also lead to rebirth there. Engaging in the moral practices of other religions will lead to rebirth within samsara Practicing the morality of the Hinayana may lead to nirvana, but this is only the nirvana of personal liberation Since it is not the perfect and complete enlightenment. This nirvana has grave disadvantages
1: Okay, so here um, there's made reference to the uh, ten non virtuous deeds uh, so those would be uh killing, stealing, sexual misconduct, lying, abusive language, slander, uh, idle talk, covetousness, maliciousness, or holding perverse view, for example, not believing in karma or rebirth with three jewels. So those are the ten non-virtuous acts. Um, And then he says even if we commit only some of the minor non-virtues This may also lead to rebirth in the lower realms This refers to the idea that we should not discount any action whether it's good or bad because it's small Because they're like seeds which then grow into large results just like a small acorn might produce a big tree and so we shouldn't just say, "Oh well, it doesn't matter if I do this or I do that. It's only a small little thing." That's really not the way that we should be thinking, because it shows we don't understand uh, how karma works. So it's important to to not commit even minor non-virtues. As far as um, the morality of the Hinayana, which leads to nirvana. Ape Rinpoche says that this nirvana has grave disadvantages. Now, we made reference to this in a a previous class. The word nirvana has sort of entered into the English language and in a very inexact way, and it has sort of taken on the meaning of something really nice or really blissful or really happy. Uh, But actually, for a Mahayana practitioner, Sakya Pandita calls it poison. He says nirvana is poisonous, like poisoned food. And the reason he says that is if you practice only for your own happiness and your own well being and you attain nirvana, you then enter into a kind of very deep meditative state. You're happy, but you're in this meditative state for a long, long, long time like eons and eons which is like billions of years. And during all that time, other sentient beings are suffering and you're not really doing anything to help them. So for a Mahayana practitioner, that's considered to be an extreme and we want to avoid the extremes. And so instead, the goal is what they call the Great Enlightenment, which is between all extremes. And a Buddha who attains the Great Enlightenment Remains engaged in helping other sentient beings who are suffering and so that's why uh, Nirvana here is referred to as a grave disadvantage
2: There are four causes of impaired morality Number one being ignorant of the precepts of morality number two not having proper devotion and respect for the rules of morality Number three, heedlessness in maintaining morality. And number four, being in the grip of manifold defilements. Of these four, being in the grip of manifold defilements is the strongest impairment to our morality. We should be aware that there are two methods to overcome defilements. Number one, subduing the defilements individually as they arise and number two discarding their seats
1: okay so the four causes of impaired morality first one is being ignorant of the precepts so (laughs) it's sort of like ignorance is is no excuse for breaking the law (laughs) i'm sorry officer i didn't know the speed limit was 50 that's why i was going 100 that doesn't get you off you still get a ticket And it's the same thing here. Just because we don't know uh, what the precepts of morality are doesn't mean we get a pass. It's our responsibility to learn them and to practice them. Not having proper devotion and respect for the rules of morality, number two, is kind of what I said before. It's like, oh, well, this doesn't really matter. It's not that important. Or I'm not sure I believe that. And if we sort of don't, have respect for the for the rules of morality, that also does not give us a pass. <laughs> uh heedlessness in maintaining morality, you just are sloppy and you don't act in a moral way. And then the fourth one being in the grip of manifold defilements. Manifold defilements, what a funny term. Does anybody have an idea what manifold defilements might might mean? Many Maybe sorry
0: many M-A-M-A, many, many yep. yeah mm-hmm.
1: what are they uh, what are the ten negative? Um, yeah usually there's lots of different ways of listing the defilements but basically they're talking about the the emotional defilements okay our anger our uh, attachment our ignorance And also the defilements of our our ignorance around the nature of reality, which is the reference that we made before to understanding emptiness. Um, So if we're talking about the two methods for overcoming the defilements, the first one is subduing them individually and then discarding their seeds. So we're going to go into this in a minute. But basically, if we have a defilement, if we have a negative emotion, We want to do something right away to suppress it. Sort of like if you have a fire in your kitchen, you're going to take the fire extinguisher and put it out right away. But that doesn't actually remove the defilement. It doesn't remove the root of it. And we need to have a second step, and we need to go in and do that. So now we're going to find out next how to subdue the defilements individually.
2: Number one, subduing the defilements individually as they arise. By this method, at the very instant we find ourselves in the grip of a certain manifested defilement, such as anger, we should counteract it by reflecting on its opposite, loving kindness and compassion. Similarly, if desire arises, we should counter it on the spot by reflecting on the ugliness or impure nature of the body. In such ways, we can counteract defilements as they arise.
1: Okay, so this is just a very brief... Discussion about it. So obviously what we need to do is we need to learn what the defilements are and then we need to learn what the antidotes are and Then we need to learn to be aware or mindful when they arise and as soon as they arise we need to immediately apply the antidote and so that's uh, The first step in subduing them so that we can then go on further and Just as they say discard the seeds or root out the the root cause of it
2: So number two discarding their seeds This can be achieved only by habituation in realizing selflessness Bodhisattvas should engage in three kinds of morality number one morality of discarding all non-virtuous deeds number two morality of accumulating virtuous deeds and number three Morality of performing deeds for the benefit of sentient beings
1: Okay, so as far as um, Discarding the seed by achieving the habituation and realizing selflessness. What does that mean? It means uh, Practicing the realization of emptiness of self and emptiness of phenomena again, that's a big topic that we won't be going into tonight But the next sentence is it's important to understand that bodhisattvas have three types of morality that they need to practice
2: So the first one is
1: to discard all non-virtuous deeds the non-virtuous deeds are the ten that we listed before But it's not enough to just stop there. It's not enough to just not do bad actions But the second one is the morality of accumulating virtuous deeds, so we need to discard the non-virtuous deeds and then start practicing the virtuous deeds. And then the third kind of morality for a bodhisattva is performing deeds for the benefit of sentient beings, because that's what bodhisattvas do. That's what the bodhisattva path is. So now we'll go to the first one, which is morality of discarding the non virtuous deeds.
2: There are two levels of morality which discard all non virtuous deeds. One level pertains to lay practitioners, and the other to celibates. With regard to lay practitioners, there are five categories. The first is the lay person who takes the refuge vows. This person is known as an upasaka who maintains refuge in the triple gem. Upasaka. upasaka. A person who takes one of the four root precepts, in addition to that, for example, not committing murder, is known as an Upasaka holding one precept. One who maintains two of the five precepts is known as an Upasaka observing some precepts. One who maintains three of the five precepts is known as an Upasaka observing most of the precepts. One who maintains all four root vows and does not indulge in intoxicants is known as the complete Upasaka. Taking the five vows also includes upholding the ten virtuous deeds. In other words, this precept holder must promise to discard the ten non-virtuous deeds in addition to observing the five precepts. According to certain Mahayana traditions, there is another level of lay practitioner who, in addition to taking the five basic vows, takes a vow of celibacy. This person is known as a brahmacharya or celibate upasaka because he observes the pure morality of a celibate in addition to the other vows. There are also lay practitioners who take the eight precepts of upavasa, not just for one day but for their entire lives. These practitioners are known as gomi upasakas. These two types of lay precept holders, the brahmacharya upasaka and the eight precept holders differ from other lay practitioners in that they observe the vow of celibacy. Of course, since they do not take all the vows of monks and nuns, they also differ from them. Whether we are lay practitioners or monks and nuns, provided we conjoin our vows with the Mahayana enlightenment thought, wishing to liberate all sentient beings, we will become holders of the pratimoksha, or moral vow of the Mahayana. If, on the other hand, we take and maintain our vows with only our own personal liberation in mind, our vows become Hinayana Pratimoksha vows.
1: Okay, so this is a long discussion about all the different kinds of vows that a person can take on the path. <clears throat> and in a minute, api Rinpoche is going to explain why this is so important. To become a Buddhist, you take refuge. You take the refuge vow. So all buddhists have at least that vow as their basis in addition there are all these other kinds of vows and different types different levels different uh rules to follow and so on but the taking of the vow is important for the practice of the bodhisattva to go along uh, the spiritual path and now we're going to find out why
2: (laughs) It is important to begin our practices with a vow because otherwise they will not become the cause, the causes for any of the three liberations or enlightenments. As just described with regard to the Pratimoksha vows, those on the Mahayana path may take the vows of a lay person, a monk or a nun through the rituals prescribed in the Hinayana teachings as followed by the Hinayanists, and they may also take the Bodhisattva vows through the ritual systems of either the middle way or the mind-only schools. With regard to people who perform virtuous deeds without holding a vow of morality, their practice of virtue is weak and will become a cause neither for liberation nor for Buddhahood. This means that, for example, if a person who has taken the vow of not killing produces the thought in his mind, I will not kill any other person, He produces the virtue of discarding killing every moment he is not engaged in the act of killing because he is motivated by a mind seeking to abandon non-virtue. However, one who simply lives his life without killing does not perform the virtue of discarding killing because he does not possess a mind seeking to abandon killing. In brief, the mere failure to commit non-virtuous acts does not produce virtue. We must therefore hold a vow of morality, which is the intention to discard non-virtuous deeds In this way as long as we continue not to commit non-virtuous deeds. We are actively engaging in virtue
1: so Let's talk about that for a minute. So this is perhaps a little bit subtle to understand but basically What Ape Rimsha is saying is that there's a difference between ordinary morality and the perfection of morality, what we said at the beginning. So if I am not a bodhisattva and I have not taken the vow to not kill, but I'm just a regular person and I see a bug and I decide not to squish the bug and not to kill it, that's a moral act, but it's not the perfection of morality. And there is, there's no sort of continuous accumulation of positive energy or positive merit on the path towards enlightenment. On the other hand, if I'm a bodhisattva and I've taken the vow not to kill, every moment that I'm not killing, I'm creating virtue. I'm accumulating merit. I'm accumulating virtue, even when I'm asleep. And that creates a lot more momentum, a lot more energy, if you like, towards the, the final goal that we're heading towards, which is perfect enlightenment or complete enlightenment. It's a subtle distinction, but it's important for us to understand this if we're going to be spiritual practitioners. And it's important for us to understand the the value of vows and what we are doing when we take a vow or we don't take a vow. And also the benefit of taking them. It's it's a complete other situation and that's true for any kind of any kind of virtuous or non-virtuous action
2: there are two ways of training in morality the brief and the extensive with regard to the brief there are three divisions object time and nature of these three the first is the practice of discarding non-virtue in terms of object In order to train in morality, it is necessary to begin in a small way, with simple practices, and then gradually expand our scope. We can do this from the viewpoint of the object. For example, we should begin our practice of discarding the ten non-virtuous deeds with close family and friends. After becoming accustomed to this, we can expand our practice of discarding killing, for example, to other human beings and animals. Likewise with regard to discarding stealing we should first practice with close relatives and neighbors and then extend this to include other people and Finally to all sentient beings The same method should be applied to discarding the remaining eight non-virtuous deeds such as telling lies and so forth
1: So this might sound kind of strange at first uh to practice not killing first with your family. (laughs) But there are people who do kill their families. And if a person has a lot of negativity and they have a lot of propensity in that direction, the Mahayana path, the Sutrayana path, is a gradual path. And we need to start slowly and small and develop the habit of the morality that we're practicing The same thing is true with stealing. You might say, well, that's funny. Practice not stealing from your family first. But there are people who steal from their families. It does happen. And so for some people, we need to start at the very beginning. When we were on the chapter of generosity, we talked about very, very, very small acts of generosity for very stingy people, like giving a glass of water, a small glass of water, or giving a small cup of cooked vegetables. And some people need to start at that level and then slowly and gradually build it and build the habit of it and create a propensity so towards generosity or morality or whatever it is. And through that gradual slow process we can build up the spiritual energy that we need to take our morality forward and perfect the perfections and do them gradually.
2: From the perspective of time, one should first try to practice not committing any of these non-virtuous deeds for half a day and gradually extend it to a full day, a week, a fortnight, then a full month, and so on, up to an entire year or more. We can also train from the viewpoint of nature of the deed, observing one vow in the beginning and then gradually increasing the number of vows we keep. So
1: sometimes the question is asked, Well, where should I start? Which one should I start with? And the answer that is usually given is you should examine yourself and decide what is your your worst trait. (laughs) What is the biggest obscuration or the biggest uh, problem that you have, the biggest non-virtue that you have, and start with that one. Start with the worst one and, and get that under control, and then go on to the next one.
2: If for some reason we impair our morality, we must restore it immediately by confessing our misdeeds. If we commit an immoral deed in the morning, we must make sure we confess it before going to sleep that night. If we commit a non-virtuous deed at night, we must confess it the next morning when we wake up, before taking any food. If we are always conscientious about confessing, we will become genuine Dharma practitioners. Buddha taught that there are two kinds of noble persons those who never impair their morality and those who confess their infractions immediately
1: Okay, some some teachers say that immediately means within four hours So in other words as soon as you recognize that you've done something you you should uh, Confess it the Buddha taught. There are two kinds of noble persons those who never impair the morality Good luck (laughs) or the rest of us those who do and need to confess immediately and also we've talked about confession before that it's really important to practice confession and the the ritual of confession because you don't know what your previous karma is you don't know what you did in previous lifetimes those deeds that are not confessed and removed karmically we have to
2: experience number 2 The morality of accumulating virtuous deeds. The second practice of morality, which must be undertaken by bodhisattvas, is the accumulation of merit. The accumulation of merit means to practice morality and also to abandon unfavorable conditions which obstruct the accomplishment of virtuous deeds. For example, if we listen to Buddha's teachings or study them, this itself is a virtuous deed. If we find ourselves being obstructed by negative forces, such as laziness, we must identify them and overcome them so we can continue our study vigorously. Abandoning negativities, such as laziness, is itself a virtuous deed and will improve our capacity for undertaking practices to accumulate merit, such as listening to the teachings and so forth. To give a further example, when we take refuge in the Triple Gem, It is possible that we may be obstructed by lack of faith. In order to overcome this, we must generate appropriate respect and devotion towards the Triple Gem by reflecting on their qualities. This becomes a virtuous deed in itself. It will strengthen our affirmation of the Triple Gem and add to our accumulation of merit. In brief, to collect or accumulate merit means not only performing virtuous deeds, but also overcoming the negative forces which obstruct our performance of virtuous deeds.
1: So this is kind of interesting because usually when we speak about morality, we think about not doing something bad or not doing something wrong, which is the first kind of morality. But the Bodhisattva also practices the second kind of morality, which is accumulating merit. Merit is just another word for positive spiritual energy. And we need to accumulate that... In order to, uh, realize emptiness or the nature of reality. Without a, a lot of spiritual energy, we will never, um, attain that because that was, that's very difficult attainment and it is really the, the crown jewel of the Buddhist teaching and one of the things that separates Buddhism from other paths. But it's not an easy thing to achieve. And so in order to, to realize that, we need to have lots and lots of merit. So, Aparimpshe explains that uh, this accumulation of merit means to not only abandon non virtuous actions, but also to abandon the unfavorable conditions which obstruct the accomplishment of virtuous deeds. So, he gives the example of laziness. Uh, laziness is usually thought of as oh well I don't feel like doing it that's kind of what we think of when we think about laziness uh, I don't know I don't feel like it which is one kind of laziness Laziness. another kind of laziness is to be overly busy and not do your practice so that's the thing that westerners a lot of us have to deal with we get really busy we have jobs, families, we have pets, we have life, we have to go do all the things that we think we have to do, and we don't practice. Oh, I'll do it tomorrow, I'll do it next week, or I really would like to, but I, I don't know, I'm kind of busy. And that's actually a form of laziness in this context. Another kind of laziness is a sort of spiritual low self esteem. I'm not good enough, I can't do this, it's too hard, this path is really long, it's really a lot of work, I'm not up to it, I don't know if I'm really cut out for this path, and that kind of spiritual, I don't think I'm good enough, is actually a form of laziness. Um, So it's important that we understand this kind of two-sided coin here that we have here, that we not only have to abandon non-virtue, But we also have to confront the obstacles that keep us from doing virtue
2: number three the morality of performing deeds for the benefit of sentient beings in order to work for the benefit of sentient beings we must first overcome any unfavorable conditions which may impede us for example if an ordained mahayana practitioner needs to transgress any of the four major vows in order to accomplish the greater benefit of sentient beings he should do so even if it means breaking his ordination vows with re-
1: oh. okay <laughs> yep. this is this requires a little bit of explanation we've talked about this before but i think it it bears repeating this is one of the distinctions between a Mahayana path and a Hinayana path, so a greater vehicle or a lesser vehicle path. So, <clears throat> if a person is a Hinayana practitioner, they will never break their moral vows for any reason because it's primary for them. Whereas a Mahayana practitioner evaluates the situation and decides what's best for the benefit. Of sentient beings even if it means breaking their vows like it says here the classic example that's given is the Hinayana practitioner or the Mahayana practitioner walking in the woods they see a deer go running by and it goes off down a trail shortly thereafter the hunter follows and says hey did you guys see a deer and because the Hinayana practitioner never breaks the moral vow one of which is to not lie he tells the truth and he tells the hunter yeah the deer went that way if the hunter asks the Mahayana practitioner because he judges the situation according to what's the best benefit for the sentient being involved in the situation he will actually lie to the hunter and say oh the deer went that away because he can save the the deer's life that way and saving the deer's life has a higher value than holding the vow not to lie and so that's one of the distinctions that's made and there's lots of stories in the Jataka tales which are the stories of the Buddha's previous lifetimes where the Buddha demonstrates this principle by his actions
2: With regard to unerringly undertaking the perfection of morality, there are four qualities to be adopted and seven attachments to be abandoned. These were explained previously in conjunction with the perfection of generosity. They apply to the perfection of morality and to all the other perfections. Want me to read this story?
1: Yeah. So uh, let me just say something. Now we're going to get into a story here. And... (coughs) When Sakya Pandita wrote his text, he wrote it for beginners, but he also wrote it for teachers. And at a certain, a lot of different points in the text, he will say, oh, and at this point, the teacher should tell the story about so-and-so and so-and-so and -and and what they did and -and so-and-so. But he doesn't have the story in this book because if you're a teacher, you should know the story. So what Ape Rimshe's book has is not all of the stories, but a lot of the stories that we need to know that are not in this book. So now we're going to hear one of these stories.
2: There are many stories in the scriptures to illustrate how a Bodhisattva must transgress the morality of discarding non-virtuous deeds when it's necessary to do so for the benefit of sentient beings. Two of these stories will be mentioned here. The first is about a Brahmin named Karma. He lived a very long time ago in the days when people were able to live for thousands of years. This Brahmin renounced the world and became a monk. He went to live in a forest to meditate, where he remained meditating very diligently and well for 4,200 years. After that time he went to a nearby town and stayed in a king's palace. One day a trader's daughter came to the palace and saw him. She was very attracted to him and went to his room to ask him to marry her. The monk, Karma, told her that she should not speak of such a thing to him as he had renounced the world. Then the girl replied that if he got up and walked away from her, she would kill herself the moment he took the seventh step. The monk thought to himself that he had renounced the world and taken vows, so he could not marry this girl. Thereupon he stood up and began to walk away. Then, just as he was about to take the seventh step, he realized that if the girl were to kill herself in his room, it would be terrible for her and cause a great scandal. He then resolved that she should be an object of his great compassion, and that he should break his vows to save her, even if it meant going to hell as a result. In other words, it was more important to save the girl than to save himself. Thus, he turned back from taking the seventh step and accepted the girl as his wife. After they had lived together for 12 years, he renounced the world again, and went away to practice for a long time. It is said that he was reborn in a heavenly realm. This shows that instead of attaining a negative result through that deed, he accumulated a vast amount of merit by resolving to put someone else's benefit before his own. That Brahmin karma was the Buddha Shakyamuni in one of his previous lives.
1: So this was a Jataka tale.
2: Second story?
1: hmm Here's another story.
2: Another story about a ship's captain. At one time, there were 500 traders who had been sailing around the ocean and visiting many islands in search of jewels. Having had a highly successful trip, they embarked on the return journey. One of the ship's crew members, who had seen the traders' collection of riches, conceived a plan to kill them all and steal their jewels. The ship's captain became aware of this crew member's intention. As this captain was a man of great compassion, he tried to think of ways to prevent this deed. However, he could not think of a viable plan. He knew that if this evil man were to kill all the traitors, he would be reborn in the hell realms for a very long time indeed. He felt compassion, and thought to himself that if he were to kill the man before he could carry out his nefarious plan, he'd save him from having to face such sufferings in the future. Therefore, with the intention of exchanging his own benefit and happiness for the suffering of others, the ship's captain killed the man. It is said that instead of being born in the hell realms, the captain accumulated a lot of merit, equivalent to what he would have accumulated through practicing virtue for nine eons. Therefore, instead of being a negative deed, This act of killing became a positive one. Again, this captain was Buddha Shakyamuni in one of his previous lives. According to the Hinayana tradition, one must never at any time break the four principal vows of an ordained person killing, stealing, sexual conduct, and lying. It is said that one's spiritual life would be ruined by breaking any of these. However, according to the Mahayana tradition, Provided that we are motivated by compassion and the Enlightenment thought we must break the four vows if it is necessary to do So to benefit others there is no fault
1: But you better be sure your motivation is pure <laughs> Otherwise <laughs> You have the karmic results of your action
2: The benefits of maintaining morality. Maintaining morality conveys great benefits. First, with regard to the temporary benefits, we will never regret our actions in this life. Our mind will remain contented and we will attain various states of meditative absorption in addition to various realizations. Our conduct will bring joy to others and they will revere us. We will even become fields of offering. In brief, many great benefits accrue from maintaining morality. Through maintaining our morality in this lifetime, we will be reborn in the higher realms of humans and gods and possess special qualities such as higher status, prosperity, wisdom, power, long life, beauty, and freedom from diseases. Second, the ultimate result of maintaining morality is the attainment of perfect buddhahood. When we become Buddhas, our fame will spread widely. Everybody will call us teacher, not only in the world of human beings, but also in the world of the divas. In addition, by becoming a Buddha, we will also attain the quality of being free from the three concealments, as extolled by Arya Maitreya in Mahayana Sutra Lamkara. Unlike worldly people, Buddha need not hide any of his behavior of body, voice, or mind to demonstrate that he's holy.
1: Hmm. So, so these benefits that Ape Rinpoche lists, <clears throat> uh, this is kind of the condensed version of the benefits, especially when he lists the benefits of uh, As the ultimate benefits the ultimate benefit means when you become fully enlightened you become a fully enlightened Buddha what's the fruit of all of your actions here of all your your path Uh, the qualities of the Buddha are many and extensive and later on in this text there is a whole chapter devoted to the qualities and and various states of a Buddha completely enlightened being and They are really really amazing and I can't wait to get to that chapter because it's really an eye-opener to see What that uh, is like so what we have here is just Ape Rinpoche is just briefly touching on the benefits, but uh, stay tuned. There's more to come So that concludes the fifth chapter the chapter of the perfection of morality and I'm just wondering. We have a group of people here that you can't see online, but um, I'm just wondering if there's any discussion or questions. And I would just ask that people kind of keep their comments brief, because I have to repeat them into the microphone here, so that the online people can hear what you have to say. So if you could sort of be uh, pithy in in what you are going to say, I'd like to just uh, open it up to discussion and questions.
2: Well, I've got a question regarding the Hinayana Nirvana. Um, eons and eons of residing in that state. Would you, would you say that one of the dangers could be a, an ultimate form of boredom?
1: <laughs> so the question is, is the Hinayana Nirvana, could it be considered an ultimate form of boredom? Well, not having ever been there, I'm not sure I can say first-handedly, but I've never heard it described that way. It's total bliss, complete happiness, the absence of suffering, it's liberation from samsara. You're completely out of the cycle of birth and death and rebirth and death and suffering.
0: So what's wrong with all of that?
1: There's yeah. nothing wrong with it. It's wonderful. <laughs> but it
0: goes on and on.
1: But and on. it goes on indefinitely, and in the meantime, you're not helping any other sentient being who's suffering. And a Mahayana practitioner does a lot of practice to develop compassion for other sentient beings who have been their mother or father in previous lifetimes, not only once, but many times, and shown complete and great Uh, Compassion and love and kindness and sacrifice and all kinds of things All you have to do is just think about the people who have sacrificed For you to get you where you are whether it be to give you life or clothes or an education or whatever And from a Mahayana point of view To just go off into bliss and leave those people behind suffering and remember Some of them are suffering in very terrible terrible situations in hell realms in hungry ghost realms, in suffering animal realms, actually all the realms are of samsara are suffering. So from a Mahayana point of view, that's not really the highest path. That doesn't mean that the Hinayana path is criticized. The Hinayana path is a path that was taught by the Buddha. He taught three paths, the Hinayana, the Mahayana, and the Vajrayana. And they're all valid paths because there's different kinds of people with different propensities. And some people need one kind of path and some people like another kind of path. You know, some people like chocolate, some people like vanilla. It doesn't mean that vanilla, that's not saying there's anything wrong with the other flavor. But the Buddha in his wisdom, he was also clairvoyant and he could see what people needed. And so he taught these paths for different types of people. But again, this text is a Mahayana text and it's from that point of view that the teachings are given. And so that's why nirvana is not considered a, a good goal for a Mahayana practitioner. In fact, it's considered an extreme, as we said before. I seriously doubt, though, that arhats are bored. I, I, I just don't think they are. I think they're in bliss. But they're... They're not really actively helping other beings, and that's the difference between Nirvana and complete perfect enlightenment.
2: I actually think that unending bliss could get very boring I, I I just suspect that
1: Can you say that louder again?
2: <laughs> I suspect that unending bliss could get boring. We're talking eons.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully we'll never know because we won't take that path. <laughs>
0: learning it's for others you know for the suffering to help alleviate the sufferings of others because again as you're saying um that you know there michael that so many people are suffering in so many horrific ways around the planet and the world how do we help them um and then learning that with the uh, the rhythm it's the balance of both of, of you know, well if you want to put it this way you're going to, and, and, and you know, oh, well, so the all else, it's a balance of both. It's not one or the other, or it's not too much of one or the other. It's the balance. Uh, is that making sense? I'm not making sense. The
1: balance of both of what? Um, sorry, I'm, I'm trying sorry, to get the question sorry, clear here.
0: Sorry. Um, not getting too much into one way or the other, but being a, in a balance. Uh, the middle path? Yeah, in a sense. Like I'm. I'm not saying this very well. Sorry, um, I'll clarify that. A bit more, sorry.
1: Okay. So what Jenny is saying, I think, yes. and correct me if I'm wrong, Jenny,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, that there's so many beings that are suffering, and if we really want to help them, if we are really bodhisattvas with the idea, the motivation to help, we need to have balance in our life. We need to have the middle path, mm-hmm. and I'm not sure what Jenny's saying. The balance is. The balance is between not too
0: um, Bliss or happiness and not too much suffering It's again the balance of both uh, I'm sorry, I'm not saying this very well clearly. Okay,
1: so Jenny's, Jenny's saying it's Not too much bliss and not too much suffering but a middle path yeah. And that I'm going to put words in your mouth So correct me if I'm doing this uh, mm-hmm. Not to your liking Mm-hmm. That that then motivates us on the path.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Is that mm-hmm. what you're saying?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's the that's the Mahayana path, mm-hmm. the Bodhisattva's path.
0: Mm-hmm. The the wisdom of balance or the balance of wisdom, rather. You know, it's that. Um, I was just starting. I hadn't quite realized again the balance. Um, that it's. Uh, Okay, it's just such a level that's not too much of the other or too much of the other, you know, the two extremes against some
1: balance. Yeah. How do we get that balance? So Jenny's, Jenny's saying the word balance. She's saying we need the balance of wisdom and method, and we need to mm-hmm. to have not any, not extremes. We need to have the middle path, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's, what, that's what the Buddha said, too, coincidentally, Jenny.
0: <laughs> Learning that slowly but surely. <laughs> yeah.
1: Okay, any other comments or questions? Maybe someday we'll be able to take questions online here. We haven't quite got the technology down pat yet, but At some point, to- at some point we might right. By the way this uh, talk should be online for a while if if you know somebody that missed the live Facebook live uh, telecast of it it should be online on the Victoria Buddhist dharma Society Facebook page and they can go and click on the video and watch it again. Uh-huh.
2: Well, I got a something did occur to me when about the story of the hunter chasing the deer. And I I have compassion for the deer, but what about the hunter's family who <laughs> might be awfully hungry and he doesn't it bring.
0: should
2: be vegetarian. <laughs> I, the, the yes, Words, and yes. many cultures have no vegetables, mm-hmm. particularly. So, uh, is is this a, is this really a a call to vegetarianism? <laughs>
1: <clears throat> so, so Sybil's saying it's fine to be compassionate for the deer. What about the poor hunter and his family that he has to feed? and uh, some cultures don't have a lot of vegetables and does this mean everybody has to be vegetarian this is one of those topics that is hotly debated among buddhists and it kind of depends on who you talk to what kind of answer you get um i'm a vegetarian but my first teacher Geshe Tashi Namgo was not He was from Tibet and he ate meat and he liked it. And this topic was hotly debated numerous evenings Mm -hmm. (laughs) among students and and teacher. Um, Certainly we want to have compassion for the hunter because we have compassion for all beings. And according to some teachers, uh, if that hunter were to kill the deer... There would be some negative karma accrued so that's part of the motivation of the Mahayana person who says the deer went a that away and not that away <laughs> um, my personal opinion is that everybody has to think about this for themselves and decide for themselves that it's not good enough to just ignore it it's like one of the guidelines in the book said You have to know what the rules are around morality Mm -hmm. because the law of karma applies to everybody so I don't think it's good enough to just close your eyes to the issue But on the other hand, we're all responsible for our own karma Mm -hmm. And the Buddha himself said that he said I can't do it for you. I can show you the way, but you got to do it yourself Mm -hmm. so my answer is Think about it, meditate on it, maybe talk to some other people, especially teachers, see what they think, and do what's right for you. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that a lot of people will disagree with my opinion, but it's one of those topics.
0: Yeah, it's a good topic. Mm-hmm. Save the deer and confess your lies that night.
1: Yeah, and, and the fact of the matter is that we do, we do create non-virtue on a continuous basis, <laughs> even when we don't realize it. That's why the confession practice is so important. Mm-hmm. It's important to do, as we said, right away. Don't even wait half a day. As soon as you realize you've done it, confess it. It's important to learn the confession ritual so that you do it correctly. Mm-hmm. And if you do that, then your karma is removed. But you've got to do the ritual. You've got to do the practice. It doesn't just go away because you wish it away.
2: It doesn't just go away because you acknowledged it. You have to acknowledge it and do something else.
1: That's part of it, but that's not the whole practice. And so what you should do is you should find a teacher that you can learn the practice from correctly and then do the practice completely because there are a number of steps that have to be fulfilled before the karma is actually removed.
2: Right.
1: That would be an interesting teaching to have some sometime
2: That would I be just, a very important. Just thinking one. that, yeah. Yeah. yeah, we would. I would. I would ask that teaching.
1: <laughs> well, we'll ask Lama and see if he'll do it. Yeah. And, and if he assigns it to somebody else, then we'll see. But it's really important. And and I, I know in the beginning I didn't realize it, and I think a lot of people don't realize that Confessions really important. And in fact, when we do our our prayers, and we're going to do the concluding prayers here shortly. Mm-hmm. At the very end of the prayers that we say, one of the things that we say is, I confess. It's a very brief, brief, brief version, but it's just to remind us that this is part of our practice. There there's seven things that we do in our practice, and that's one of the seven. So this is why we have classes. This is why we study. This is why we contemplate. This is why we meditate, so that we can learn what the practices are and go forward on the path, create the merit, get the spiritual energy the momentum going towards final fruit of enlightenment, but certainly Confessing is is one of them and it's something and so are the other six (laughs) So it's really important to learn what they are if you're going to do the path and then no problem life becomes uh, worthwhile
0: And I know be really grateful for a certain practice that the confession and the practices you can do that help cleanse your mirror. But I hear what you're saying too. You need to do the, you need to do the whole full uh, practice of doing that, confessing, and then the different elements with that. But yeah, and then the different practices you can do that help cleanse and purify that mirror. And then
1: yeah, so Jenny's... Uh... Reiterating what I just said, that the practice is important and and there are other practices that are important too. Mm. By the way, there are different kinds of confession practices. There's not just one, there's different ones. Some of them are briefer and some of them are more extensive and so on. But um, yeah, it's important to do.
0: Thank
1: you, Michael. Any other comments, questions, or complaints? Okay,
2: thanks. Yeah.
1: So that's um, the end of the fifth chapter. We will be doing this again next week if people want to come or tune in. And uh, one of the seven practices that we do is dedication. And so we will now do the dedication prayers, which are the dedication practice. And what dedication does is it sort of seals your merit, the merit that we've Generated by doing the practice in this case. We're studying a text. So that creates positive merit, right? Um, and the dedication then Shares it because we are Mahayana practitioners. We're doing our practice including this evening for the benefit of all beings so the dedication spreads the wealth so to speak and it also seals it so to speak so that it won't be destroyed by a negative action for example anger So the dedication is always the final concluding step in any practice that we want to do The first step is going for refuge The middle step is the practice itself itself and the final step or the third step is the dedication So now we'll read the dedication prayer in English By this merit may all attain omniscience may it defeat the enemy wrongdoing From the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death, from the ocean of samsara, may all beings be free. Bodhicitta is precious. May it arise in all beings in whom it has not arisen. May it never decline where it has arisen, but may it ever grow and flourish. In whatever way valiant Manjushri and Samantabhadra know how to transfer merit, So do I dedicate all my own virtues, that I may train to be like them. Through this dedication, praised as supreme by the victorious Buddhas of the past, present, and future, I, together with all sentient beings, dedicate these roots of virtue to attaining Buddhahood. May whatever little virtue I may have gained from prostrating, offering, confessing,
0: Rejoicing,
1: rejoicing, requesting, and and beseeching, be dedicated to attaining attaining perfect perfect enlightenment.
0: enlightenment. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Michael. Thank
1: Thank you for listening.